This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Today's episode, we are going to be exploring chapter eight of Pete Walker's book, The Tao of Fully Feeling. In chapter eight, he talks about how fully feeling or moving into an adult that has the capacity to fully feel depends upon fully remembering. He starts out with a quote from W.H. Auden, and he says, we would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and see our illusions die. He starts out talking about how usually for most survivors, prior to them beginning a journey of therapy and recovery, little is remembered about the early stages of their childhood, much before the age of five often. They may not have really good memories. He says some clients may not remember anything before the age of 12. The length of period of childhood amnesia generally correlates, he says, with the degree and the extent of early traumatization. So in this chapter, he describes the importance of retrieving more accurate information about childhood so that we can thoroughly understand exactly what it is that we need to recover from and what actions are required to enable that recovery. He quotes Dennis Woolley in Becoming Your Own Parent, who identified some of the key problems that adult children need to recover from. Dennis said, equally devastating as a result of this kind of childhood is a personality profile that encompasses horribly low self-esteem, the inability to have fun, being super responsible or super irresponsible, and becoming a dependent personality terrified of abandonment. The tragic consequence of tens of millions of adult children from unhappy homes is that they don't know who they are, don't know how to take care of their own needs, and feel good about themselves and don't enjoy intimacy. These millions get involved in disastrous relationships, act impulsively, judge themselves without mercy, and constantly seek approval and security. Kind of describes a lot of people that you may know, that I may know. It also, I think, can then describe or lead to some of the many social issues that we see in our culture and in our society that cause some pretty big problems. He says that constructing a detailed picture of childhood abuse and neglect is important. And he quotes Suzanne Short, who says, it is in the vague feeling of being homesick, even when we are at home, that we begin to search for answers in the dark caves of infancy. I remember when my kids were a little bit older, old enough that I could like leave them at home if I had errands to run or something like that. And when I was growing up, so we had six kids and then my mom and dad, so there was eight of us in a house, I'm really bad at like guessing measurements and things like that. I'm really bad at that. I think at some point I heard or my husband estimated it that it, our house was probably around 1,400 square feet, if, if that's right. So it was a split entry, upstairs, two bedrooms, master and a bedroom. And when I say master, again, it was built in, the, in 1973. So... The master bedroom didn't really have like a bathroom attached to it or like a walk-in closet or things that are common to today's homes or remodels that are done of older homes. 
So I had, you know, my parents' bedroom and then another bedroom and then downstairs, another two bedrooms. So there were four bedrooms total and then eight people. And when I was growing up, you know, the basement was unfinished. And so, you know, when we started just having extra kids, my sister and I, my sister two years older than I, we had to move downstairs into a largely unfinished basement. Um, I think they did, they did finish our bedroom, but our bedroom was then one room of an unfinished basement. And it wasn't until the two brothers under me, so kids three and four, were teenagers and they were working with, you know, some men in the neighborhood who did construction and stuff. They had part-time jobs or summer jobs with them and they decided to finish the basement. So my brothers who were probably, I don't know, 17 and 15 or maybe 16 and 18, they actually finished the basement, put another bathroom in. So up until they were older, we had eight people, one bathroom, four bedrooms. So a very small house. And then there was a lot of tension in my house and there was a lot of conflict in my house. And I always shared a bedroom and so it's not like I could just go in my room and shut the door, although we did that a lot. Um, we would go in our room and just kind of hide out so that we didn't get in trouble or you know that we weren't part of like something spilling over into conflict. And so when I you know, was a little bit older, if everybody was gone, I loved being at home alone, like nobody else there, nobody that I had to babysit or take care of or anything like that. I just really enjoyed when nobody else was at my house growing up. And so, you know, I projected this onto my kids and I remember, you know, I would say to them sometimes like, okay, so when you get home from school or, you know, like my oldest, I think was in junior high. And so the other kids were still in elementary school and stayed a little bit later um, at school, school didn't get out as early as my oldest. And so I'd say, okay, you're going to come home from school and then I won't be there and you get to have the house all by yourself. And then in about 30 minutes, the other kids will come and then I'll be home about 10 minutes after that or something like that. Right. And I would kind of talk her through it and I'd talk like her having the house to herself was something great. And one of these times I was saying that to her and she just kind of stopped me and she was like, mom, I don't like to be home alone. And I was just like, what? Like, you don't? And she was just like, no, no, I don't, I don't, I don't like being at home by myself. And I, it was one of those moments where I was just like, I thought everybody liked being home by themselves. Like, doesn't every kid love that? No, just me. And it was one of those where I had to be like, oh, oh, that's another issue that I've got to work through. Like, I just thought, what my experience was, was so normal or so common that like all kids experience that. So I had to adjust kind of that reality and start to take into account what she was telling me. Like, I don't really enjoy being home all by myself, even though, you know, she was old enough. She was 13, 14, something like that. But she was just like, I don't, I don't enjoy that. And so I had to like rearrange how I thought about the world. It's things like that, you know, that feeling of, when she talks about that vague feeling of being homesick, even when we're at home. I don't know that I was homesick as a kid, right? But I did not feel good in my home. And then he quotes Sheldon Kopp, who says, it is always a touching experience to go with a client back far enough in the retelling of her own tale to approach that point at which she can once more 
see herself as too young to be reproached. Even the most self-despicating adult cannot maintain the absurd image that she was once inadequate at being a baby. He talks about how in our Judeo-Christian culture, there's the commandment to honor thy father and mother. And he says it can be more accurately rendered as Alice Miller's book title, Thou Shall Not Be Aware. Now, I've talked before in different episodes about in the ACOA 12-step fellowship, the adult children of alcoholics and other dysfunctions, how they talk about when you grow up in dysfunctional homes, you grow up with the rules of don't see, don't feel, and don't talk. And it's similar to what Alice Miller's book title was, Thou Shall Not Be Aware. Don't be aware of it, right? I was talking with a couple that I worked with a couple weeks ago, and we were talking particularly about the husband's uh, family of origin. And she was saying to me, like, I don't understand. I don't understand this, like, not talking about something. Like, how do you not talk about it? And I said, well, you have to remember that rule number one is you don't see it. So if you don't see something, if you don't feel something, there's nothing to talk about, right? Not talking is easy. If you can't even see what you see and feel what you feel, then we're disconnected from reality at that point. He talks about how a lot of people have a lot of difficulty dismantling denial and minimization about childhood abuse or childhood suffering And he says a lot of this, we can do that or we can minimize it or we can forget it because it was in the preschool years. It was in those early years. I mean, when I think about this, those are the years, right, when when kids are mostly with parents full-time. If you're a stay-at-home mom or something like that, like once a kid is able to go to school and especially like school, like first grade, I mean, in Utah here, we don't have full-day kindergarten, so it's half-day. But once that kid goes into first grade, there's a good seven hours of the day that they're not with the parent, right? And so, I mean, I can remember the more demanding years were when their entertainment, their fulfillment, their needs were all on me. And I didn't share that with school or other sports or things like that that they got into. So that makes sense to me that a lot of this wiring or this abuse is happening in those early years when kids are really just kind of homebound with parents. He says, many toddlers in our culture are routinely subjected to intense periods of scolding and spanking. They are hampered in their development by enormous amounts of unnecessary restriction and discipline. Many parents are oblivious to the fact that children need a great deal of permission to explore their immediate environments. It is crucial to their development that they be allowed to participate as much as possible in all that transpires around them. Now he talks about how functional parents liberally and patiently greet their children's eagerness to participate and help, regardless of the fact that it makes the task much longer. Now I would say, I mean, he didn't say this, but I would think functional parents, you know, we're not talking functional parents 100% of the time. Now that may be 30% when we're not functional or 40% when we're not functional can't override the 60% of functional, right? It can't be so harmful or so neglectful or so abusive that it overrides the positive. But I remember being in a training several years ago when I did my EFT training. I think I've done an episode on that. It stands for emotion-focused therapy. 
with Sue Johnson. She was kind of the creator of that modality and works with couples on attachment um, and attunement. And we were in that training and the presenter was talking about good enough parenting. And which I think, you know, we now know that good enough parenting is actually pretty functional parenting. But she was saying, I can't remember the exact number. She gave the percentage. Like if you are a good, attuned and attached parent, it was something like 60 something percent of the time, then you're good. Like that is enough. That is good enough parenting. And you're going to get a child to adulthood who is securely attached. And I remember hearing that and being like, wait a minute. And I raised my hand, which is unusual for me at trainings. I don't typically talk very much or ask questions. And so I raised my hand and I was like, could you say that number again? And she gave it again. And I don't, like I said, I don't remember the number, but I remember saying to her, that's like just a little bit more than every other day. Like I can be a good parent like a day and a half or even a day and a quarter. It was something like that. And she kind of laughed and she was like, right, that's what that means. And I was just like, oh man, I got to relax. Like I am way too stressed out about this parenting thing. Now, parenting is difficult. Like getting our kids, these little creatures who come into our life and we've got to prepare them for the world and teach them what they need to teach, all of that. Like can be overwhelming. And again, I think when we think about functional parents. We, we don't have to think about stellar parents, right? We're not talking about Olympic parents. We're talking about functional parents, which sometimes I will say to my clients, like functional is a pretty low bar, actually. Like we're not talking about, you know, gold medals here. We're talking about functional. So he talks about that functional parents also childproof their homes during the toddler stage so that the child isn't constantly being reprimanded or scolded or fingers you know, slapped or something like that, hand slapped, because they're getting into things that they're not supposed to touch. He says it's an awful state of affairs that so many mothers in our culture routinely arouse sympathy with the exasperated complaint, he's into everything, when they should instead be proudly exulting in their child's wonderful sense of exploration. He said mothers inhibit their children's development and damage and destroy their spiritedness and confidence when they curtail their exuberance and confine them with unnecessary restraints. The practice of confining toddlers in playpens for long periods is a sad Western custom that marks for most children the beginning of an ongoing destructive confinement of their self-expression. So again, when we're thinking about some of this abuse or damage that is done in those toddler years, those pre-verbal or preschool years. Again, what he's describing here, maybe a lot of us wouldn't think of that as big T traumas, right? Something really bad happened. But, you know, I work with a lot of clients. It's not uncommon. I think it's changing somewhat here in the state that I reside. But this was, this was true too of other, like not just because of religion, but You know, the the LDS church here in the state of Utah, like encourages larger families than I think the national average and always has. I think there were times in history, of course, where, you know, child mortality rates were lower. And so parents were having more children just to get children to make it to adulthood. 
Also, you know, kids were an asset to the family. They were free labor. Again, I don't think that that helped us not have trauma, intergenerational trauma, but we know that, you know, for many, when we were working on farms and families, that wasn't my family, but when, when families were working on farms, right, the children, they were an asset because they could get them working and not have to pay. And, you know, sometimes you read about these farm accidents that happen to young kids and it's a little bit of an alarming rate at which that happened. But again, we have to think about how many kids were out there working for the family before, you know, they were really old enough to be doing that because that's what the family's survival depended upon. He also talks about how impatient mothering usually costs children a great deal more than impatient fathering. And he specifies, he says, I do not want to minimize the traumatic effects of absent fathering. And he talks about this in a little bit, but he says, you know, it's just that so many times in this, in these early years, like I was saying, kids are with mom. And so there's more likelihood that the impatient mothering is going to have a big impact on the child because that's who they're with. He talks about how often for survivors, it can be difficult for them to validate their losses around the non-physical forms of abuse and neglect. So we're not necessarily talking about um, the physical, like we're not talking about hitting, we're not talking about slapping, we're not talking about those types of things, but we're talking about the non-physical abuse and neglect. And so he says in this chapter, we're going to go into some in-depth looks at different, different ways that this can happen. And... I'm not going to go as in-depth as he does in the book, but we are going to highlight them. He also says that it's not necessary to recall every single incident of abuse in order to achieve significant recovery. And isn't that great to hear? I will also say that is true in um, the work that I've done with my clients. And sometimes I tell clients, like, I don't think that we can force memories. Likewise, if a memory is coming there's not a whole lot we can do to stop it from breaking through into the consciousness. So some of my clients have more memories than they're comfortable with and would like to forget some of those. And other of my clients would like to have more memories. Now, sometimes as we work on the trauma, other memories surface, right? And they come up. And I usually say, if a memory's coming, you've got to let it come and be gracious with yourself, be empathetic with yourself, you know, if you have a support person, you can say, hey, I've got this issue. I'm, it's coming to my conscious and, you know, can, do you have time for a phone call or can you watch the kids or something like that? That can be helpful. But we also don't need to remember everything. And, you know, I usually will say to clients, like, I find that healing kind of comes in packages. That we remember enough about something and it, it's enough that it kind of heals whatever was left that we didn't remember or we didn't recall. Now, sometimes that also means that later years, memories get triggered. So we can't put ourselves on this timeline like, oh my gosh, I've already, I've already done this. This package has already been processed. Jackie said it processes in packages. We can't do that, right? If it comes again, we have to invite it in. We have to sit with it. We have to feel it. We have to express it, all of that type of stuff. But he says, you know, it, it is essential that we identify the key themes of our abuse and neglect. He says, for example, some of these themes are criticism of physical appearance, sarcasm about crying, belittlement about expressing anger, 
degradation for making mistakes, humiliation about aspirations and dreams, deprivation of affection, general lack of interest, failure to teach basic survival skills, poor care in matters of grooming and diet, lack of protection from others, unfair criticism. And that's just some that he lists. He says the list goes on. He says many of these themes can be summed up as the no self-esteem rule. He says, while many dysfunctional families enforce denial and minimization through the infamous no talk rule, even more operate with the unspoken rule that children are not allowed to have self-esteem. I did a podcast episode a couple years ago, maybe on, it was on EMDR, but I think actually, I mean, I did talk about EMDR, but I think it was true for more than just EMDR modalities. And really, I would say that was more about how trauma healing looks in therapy, even though I was kind of talking about the EMDR lens. And I talked about how, you know, there's kind of some channels that I see, you know, so like he talked about the no self-esteem rule. Um, and I would say, like, I, I think I talked about in that podcast episode, like there was a, a theme around the trauma that dealt with like uh, value and worth. I think there, that's a theme. I think there's themes around safety. Am I safe? Can I be secure with this person? Am I safe with this person? Am I safe in this relationship? That's another theme that it goes down. I think there's also a channel that it goes down about responsibility. So clients that I work with where this is an issue, usually they have been given more responsibility than is actually theirs. And so we kind of have to work through that and start to give back responsibility to the other participating parties. Or there's a feeling of maybe something bad happened and they're blaming themselves. Again, it's a over-responsibility, but their feeling or the thought might be, I should have done more. Again, we have to recognize often that they're children. And so children have limited capacities to do more. But I find that responsibility kind of splits down one of those two lines about either I am owning more for something than I should be, or I'm telling myself like I should have done more to stop something bad that happened. Like I said, he wants to talk about some of the ways that self-esteem can be destroyed by abuseful or neglectful parenting. So one of these is through verbal abuse. He says verbal abuse is the use of language to shame, scare, or hurt another. He says dysfunctional parents routinely use name-calling, sarcasm, and destructive criticism to overpower and control their children. Verbal abuse is as commonplace in the American family as homework and table manners. It is modeled as socially acceptable in almost every sitcom on television. When you hear that, right, you're probably like me, when I read that, thought of several TV shows that came to mind that I was like, oh, yeah, it is modeled in our TV sitcoms. And we're laughing about that, which I don't know how much more accepting and normalizing it gets than when we are watching something and laughing about it as though it's entertaining. He says, when language carries threats, it can be even more abusive and destructive. Things like, if you don't wipe that expression off your face, I'll wipe it off for you. Or if you don't eat your peas, you'll get nothing for Christmas. He says verbal abuse is quite different from constructive criticism. Statements like, hitting your sister is not okay. I don't even know how many times I had to say that. Putting your sister in a headlock is not okay. 
or saying things like, hey, it's not okay. I used to have to say this. Like, I understand you're angry right now and it's fine for you to be angry, but you don't get to throw things at me or you don't get to yell, I hate you at the top of your lungs, right? Like, if you want to be angry, let's be angry, but like, don't have it come right at me. And likewise, I tried not to vent my anger at my children. So he says, you know, those types of things saying like, you didn't get your homework done. So no, you cannot go out and play right now because homework has to be done before you go play. That is not verbal abuse, right? That is functional parenting. We do have to put in consequences. We do have to teach appropriate boundaries and have consequences when the boundaries are not followed or teach how to deal with these emotions. It's okay to do this. It's not okay to do this. But he says often people grow up in families in which criticism was not constructive. And so maybe some of these things were being taught, but it was also being taught with some attack on their personal character or who they were as a child. And he says, you know, for a lot of survivors, they still believe and cling to these negative parental appraisals regarding themselves, no matter what the evidence is to the contrary. So that's verbal abuse, right? Things that are said that are damaging. Then we get into emotional abuse. Emotional abuse is the use of feelings to shame, scare, or hurt. He says the parent who screams and yells with rage at her child is being emotionally abusive, right? That is scary to have a parent yell at you. She's dumping her anger and frustration on the child. I often will also talk to clients about the enmeshment that happens there. You know, sometimes it's actually said, you know, parents may say, you make me so mad or you make me feel this, right? It's this enmeshment where kids are literally being taught that the parent's emotions are the responsibility of the child, which is not true. Instead of being able to say, hey, I'm having a difficult day right now. I need to come back to this, right? That is a statement where the parent owns their responsibility. Or sometimes, like there were times that my kids saw me cry and they would say, mom, are you sad? Yes, I'm sad. I'm crying. Mom's going to be okay. I'm just feeling sad. Sometimes I would tell them about what and other times I wouldn't. And I would say, yeah, I'm feeling sad. And they may say, do you want a hug? And I'm like, yeah, a hug would be good, right? So again, I'm taking ownership and I'm not gaslighting my kids. If they notice that I look sad or they notice I'm crying and they inquire about that, I answered honestly, yes, I'm sad today. I'll be okay, but today I'm feeling sad. And sometimes, like I said, I gave them reasons and other times not. And, you know, they were fairly young. They didn't need a whole lot of explanation, but I also didn't want them feeling responsible for my emotions. He says, when children are continuously sullied with their parents' anger, sadness, depression, and fear, they get a bad taste for these emotions. And this adds to their fear of these feelings in themselves and in others. They grow up to be adults who go to extraordinary lengths to avoid feeling or expressing emotion. And often, you know, that enmeshment pattern is carried on when they have kids now, or even just when they get into relationships, the other person is responsible for their emotions. I'm feeling this way because you did this. Now, maybe sometimes that's true, but we can't blur that line about what my feelings are and maybe this other person contributed to my feelings, but they're not responsible for causing my feelings or fixing my feelings. 
He says also, you know, the parent who manipulates by withdrawing. Sometimes there's maybe not that emotional abuse that happens, but the parent just stonewalls and withdraws from the child, gets pouty, or is just kind of silent. That's also emotionally abusive. If you're not familiar with the still face um, experiment that was done, you can go to YouTube. And so it's still like S-T-I-L-L, where the parent did not engage like, I mean, again, this is like a two minute thing. So it's not doing lasting damage on this like 18 month old or probably a year old child. I would guess it was more like a year old. And the child's trying to engage mom and mom's just having a blank expression. So again, that withdrawing and not being attuned or not engaging with our child is also emotional abuse. And the children will feel that. If you've seen that video or if you want to go watch it, that child gets very hyper aroused and almost like in a state of primal panic because it cannot get mom to engage. Then there's also emotional incest or what we call parentification. Similar to the enmeshment piece, but I would say that emotional incest usually involves kind of this reversal of the parent-child roles. So when this occurs, the mom or the dad parentifies the child who is then manipulated to gratify the unmet childhood needs of the parent. Now, when I work with these clients, often they're quite successful, very capable individuals, but they just didn't have a childhood, right? They've been this responsible, capable, successful, accomplished person from a very young age, and they don't recognize what didn't happen for them or what they weren't allowed to experience or feel or have access to because they didn't have this parent in the parent role and instead they were in the parent role. They were parentified. Now often in large families, I think that just happens. I don't know, like as a parent myself, I mean, there's no way I could have taken care of six kids. I just couldn't have done it. Four was a little bit of a stretch for me. When my youngest was coming along, I had to keep reminding myself, I'm not done. I'm not done parenting. Not that we're ever done, right? But yeah, I wanted to be done with with homework. I wanted to be done with high school projects. And I wasn't because I chose to have this kid. I chose to bring her into the world and I was committed to parenting her throughout. But if I had two more or, you know, with my parents, I mean, my parents in no way were emotionally or physically or financially capable of parenting six kids. And so often those older kids end up taking care of the younger kids. The older kids get parentified because parents are done or parents are doing what they need to to help support the family financially. And so these older kids are kind of pseudo parents stepping in to take care of the kids and in that way are parentified. He talks about how there's a deadly duo between verbal and emotional abuse. He says often verbal and emotional abuse are perpetrated at the same time. So there might be anger and disgust in the parent's tone of voice that also makes the child feel like they're bad or unlovable or that something's wrong with them. So we've got that emotional abuse where the child is feeling rejected or dismissed or what's the word I'm thinking of by the parent, like um, it's not disowned, um, but what am I thinking of? Anyway, where the parent is very disappointed and not happy with the child 
And so the child is feeling that and the parent may be getting angry at them because they didn't do something or something along those lines. So those two things can happen, one being more external and the other one maybe more internal for the child. He says that tone of voice is often the vehicle by which emotions are delivered. And he says that tone of voice can be very abusive. Now, my parents were both yellers. My mom was a yeller. My dad was a yeller. I, I think I've said before, I grew up kind of with a voice that I don't, I'm not a very good yeller. My voice cracks or I, you know, like will lose my voice or something like that. If I, I start coughing, I'm not a very good yeller. But I also learned fairly young, I would say I knew this by high school age, that I didn't have to yell. I didn't have to raise my voice at all to level somebody. Like I could use a flat disinterested and just use words that were a sucker punch. I knew I could do that. And so I also knew that just because I didn't yell didn't mean that I didn't have to be careful with my words and my tones and and be responsible for the impact that what I said had on another person. Now, sometimes too, the words can be right, right? So maybe we're not recognizing that verbal abuse, but the tone implies more manipulation or the tone implies something that's not safe. And that can be really difficult for kids to distinguish between when parents are saying, of course we love you, but parents are then being the martyr or you're just really hurting my feelings. Of course I love you, but you're just making me do this, right? Like, and so, but that can be very confusing for the child because the tone can even sound loving and the words sound loving, but the motivation or what's happening underneath the tone and the words is quite manipulative. And then we can also use that tone to emotionally intimidate. He asked the question, how many of us remember a parent or an adult saying something to us like, how dare you talk to me in that tone of voice? And yet, how many of us actually would ever dare ask our parents that same thing, right? Usually, kids were not the ones initiating that tone of voice. That was usually something done by the parent. And the kid is responding in a similar tone and giving it back to the parent. And the child is shut down while it's never addressed what the parent was doing. So again, this can get quite complex. And for a lot of kids, it just goes over their head. And so they they don't know how to process it. They're not able to actually process it. And so like he started the book off talking about, it just gets repressed. Then he talks about sarcasm and teasing and how that's just disguised abuse. He says, studies of teasing behavior in children, powerfully traumatic to the young victim of the behavior, suggest that it's significantly more prevalent among children from homes where discipline is severe and authoritarian, contrasted to homes with a tolerance for the open, direct expression of anger and assertiveness. He says sarcasm and teasing are among the most widespread forms of verbal and emotional abuse in our society today. Again, if we go back to how many TV shows use sarcasm to get a laugh, but actually what's happening is hurtful. What we're watching is actually not entertainment even if it rings a chord with us, right? I remember being at a comedy show. This would have been like maybe in 2016 or 2017. I was with my husband and my brother and his wife. It was Norm MacDonald who's passed away now, but he was in town. We went to his comedy show. We remembered, you know, watching him on Saturday Night Live. Overall, I liked him as a comedian. 
But I remember, you know, he's given a set and we're laughing and just kind of enjoying the show. And then he kind of moved into a different set. As comedians do, right? I'm sure it was intentional. But he was kind of setting up this joke. And it was actually quite sexist. Which I think he was trying to bring attention to sexism. But it hit me. And I was just like, uh, like the laughter I was enjoying all of a sudden just was gone, right? And I'm looking around the room at everybody who's laughing and I'm just like, oh no, that just got really hurtful really fast. Like that's painful right there. You know, he talks about how laughter is dysfunctional when it's used to mask rather than release sadness or anger. He says, just as crying cannot replace the function of angering in grieving, laughter can't replace the function of either crying or angering. We're not gonna be able to get that same release from laughing when instead what we need to be doing is crying or we need to be anger and ventilating that anger. He says, in our culture, denial about the destructiveness of sarcasm is rampant. And that much of the teasing and sarcasm that takes place in the average family and the wider society is a little more than camouflaged abuse. You know, I I think it's one of those things as your kids start to learn jokes and they're telling jokes and you hear so many knock-knock jokes that really aren't that funny, but you're kind of laughing. But then they start to pick up on the sarcasm piece, right? And I, you know, I would used to, I would say to my kids, there's a difference between being witty and being sarcastic. Witty requires some intelligence or some knowledge, right? I can be witty about something and use a comparison between this book and this or something like that, right? But it doesn't have that cutting edge to it. Sarcasm is usually funny at somebody's expense which again like he says that's just abuse when i am getting people to laugh at and mock at somebody else's expense that's sarcasm and that's actually abusive you know he says often so many of us are so emotionally deadened that we don't recognize sarcastic attacks and sometimes we even fail to notice how contracted and wary we become around those who habitually prick us with sarcasm I have a client and we're trying to work through some of this denial right now about his experiences with his dad. And, you know, dad had, I mean, there was a lot of verbal abuse. There was a lot of emotional abuse, but it was all done under the guise of teasing. I was just making a joke. Can't you just laugh? Like, why are you so serious about yourself, right? Where dad is deflecting any responsibility for the damage he's heaping on his son happened to, you know, my client recalls that happening to his sister as well. And dad takes no accountability. And then mom would come in and say, oh, that is just how dad shows love. And so I have to say, probably on a weekly basis in our sessions, that's not love. Actually, that story you're telling me is really sad. That's not love at all. And I'm so sorry that your mom conflated abuse with love. He talks about, he quotes Bach and Goldberg, who say a child who teases is expressing indirect hostility. The teasing is a manifestation of his inability to express aggression in open and direct ways. The teasing child is not reacting to real and immediate annoyances. He is scapegoating and expressing ill will that has been carried over as a result of past suppression of the direct expression of these feelings. It's a little bit wordy right there. It's a little bit hard to follow. But basically what they're saying is this is kind of 
the anger or the aggression that that child feels, maybe even the that part of the self that wants to advocate for self but can't do that, right? And so it comes out sideways and it actually comes out by this displacement on somebody else where I'm teasing you in hurtful ways and even aggressive ways. Sometimes the language can be quite aggressive because I don't know how to express the feelings that I have directly. And so it comes out indirectly at somebody else and at somebody else's expense. He talks about how, again, how much, you know, so many people, comedians became well-known for this type of humor, this type of entertainment. You know, he talks about Don Rickles, Howard Stern, and Andrew Dice Clay. He says even David Letterman, for all his pure comic brilliance, sometimes degenerates into destructive sarcasm. He baits some interviewees so intensely they can hardly hide their discomfort even though they are accomplished actors or actresses. He says children are especially prone to imitating what they see on television. And so when parents are watching this and laughing about this or emulating this person, kids are going to pick that up as a way for them to somehow empower themselves when it actually doesn't empower them and it hurts others. He talks about how specifically for young boys, how early they are cut off from access to their emotions. He says most boys lose touch with their emotions being nurtured on sarcasm. Every emotion except anger is teased out of them. If they cry, they're a little girl. If they're hurt, they're a sissy, something like that, right? It's all teased out of them except anger. And over time, they learn to automatically repress these other feelings especially fear and sadness, and replace them with anger. Anger and angry sarcasm then become the only acceptable modes of male emotion expression. He says, although some boys grow up to become rageaholics, most eventually learn how to control their anger by diverting it into sarcasm. Most gradually devolve into the feelings, feelingless stereotype of the modern male who is totally befuddled by the notion of emotions. So I, you know, I think that often happens um, with men. I've talked about that before, how men are kind of reduced to the feelings of anger and sexual desire. He also talks about how sarcasm just kills relationships a lot of different ways. And so, you know, for people who want to enjoy intimacy in relationships, if they've been cut off from their emotions and they can't express them directly, or they choose to go indirectly into sarcasm, it's actually going to get in the way of them getting the relationship that they long for. Now, he talks about, right, it's not that we can't in relationships sometimes tease each other, right? But it can't be at the expense of the other, right? So sometimes I'll, I'll talk about how, you know, I mean, my husband thinks it's weird. I think it's weird for him, but he thinks it's weird about me, right? And sometimes I'm just like, I don't know, it's just the mom in me, which I know not all moms are like that, but you know, sometimes my kids would be like, where did I put this? And I'm like, oh, it's downstairs by the couch under the table, right? And my husband would be like, how do you know that? And I'm like, I, I don't know, right? Whereas I could say to my husband, like, hey, can you go downstairs and get me this, right? And he would come back up and say, we don't have any. Like, and I would be like, yes, we do. Like we had a storage uh, room down in our basement and so you know I just have some extra food down there or something to have on hand I'm minimizing that but that's okay 
And so I would say to him, can you go down and get me this and cooking dinner? And he'd come back up and be like, we don't have any. And I'm like, yes, we do. And he's like, I can't find it. And I'd be like, okay, go down, turn to your left, walk to the second shelf over. It's the third one down, should be next to this, right? And then he'd come back up and he'd find it. And I'd be like, I would say things to him like, it is a good thing that you are good looking because you are just not a good looker. You know, it was a way, I mean, was I frustrated? Maybe a little bit, but it also became kind of a teasing way, but not at anybody's expense. Or sometimes my husband would tease me about the fact that like, I know random information that like nobody should actually know that information and that that's weird. So couples can have, you know, some lightheartedness in their relationship and some teasing, but I think we also have to know if that hurts this person's feelings, I don't get to do that anymore, right? If it hurt my husband's feelings that I was telling him that he was not a good looker, then regardless of how fun I thought it was or harmless I thought it was, I would need to stop that because for him, it didn't feel good. And I don't get to dictate what feels good or not to him. You know, he talks about how in all relationships, we're going to have some disappointment. We're going to have some disagreements. We're going to have just differences in relationships, right? And we need to be able to have these open channels of communication in order to talk about these things, to talk about the differences, to talk about what's happening or the disappointments and be able to, you know, have adult conversations about our disappointments or about our expectations. We might have to adjust the expectation. We might have to let go of the disappointment or sometimes the other person has to pick that up and say that is a fair that's a fair claim that you have i can work on that you know but if we continue that pattern from our childhood where we're not able to talk about it where we can't have an open direct conversation and instead you know we repress it we shove it down we shove it down and then we explode or you know it comes out in biting sarcasm or what i call brutal honesty right Sometimes if I'm in a couple session and one says, can I be brutally honest? I'm like, no, no, no brutality. Please, no brutality here. I need you to be rigorously honest. I need you to be honest, but please don't be brutal, right? Let's be kind and honest. Let's be respectfully honest. You know, he says, as we work through this childhood trauma, we become more open to feedback from our partners, from the people who are close in our life. You know, we're receptive to fair complaints, especially if they don't come in destructive criticism ways or sarcasm ways. And we can start to change that behavior because we understand the damage that it did to us and how continuing to live in this way just continues that damage and doesn't actually allow for healing and openness and connection and intimacy to build. Now he talks about verbal neglect as well. Now, if you think about, we've talked about verbal abuse, right? I think we've talked about neglect, but think about verbal neglect for a minute. He says, modern parents routinely neglect their children by not spending generous amounts of time talking with them. He says, verbal neglect is conversational deprivation. It causes children to grow up believing there's something so fundamentally wrong with them that they are unworthy of conversational engagement. Sometimes, you know, these conversations revolve around homework or chores or something like that. And again, that says to the kid that my worth is in performing. My worth is in doing tasks that help the family. I shared 
in the last episode about me cleaning up the house so that mom at least wouldn't get mad at us about that, right? And so somewhere I picked that up that that helped or that my worth was connected to that instead of this just, you know, kind of having healthy conversations with our kids and generous amounts of healthy conversations with our kids. I remember when my daughter was, when my one daughter was young and she had a friend the same age and I was friends with that friend's mom. And I was at this mom's house when both of our kids came home from school. My daughter knew I was going to be there. So she came to that house and, you know, that they burst through the door wanting to tell us, I think they were in the, you know, third or fourth grade, wanting to tell us all the things that happened at school that day. It had been a very exciting day in the fourth grade. And, and, you know, I was just listening to my daughter and asking her questions and, you know, the other mom, her daughter was talking to her and they went downstairs to the daughter's room and, you know, they were kind of out of earshot. And my friend said to me, like, I don't know how you act interested in those things. Like I the I would rather poke myself in the eye than listen to those things. And I was like, okay, first of all, wow. Secondly, I know you have some mom trauma there, so not surprising. I didn't say that to her, but I just said, well, yeah, some of the stories they're telling me right now aren't the most interesting or even aren't the most relevant to anything. But if I want my daughter at 15, 16, 17, 18, I don't know, 25 to be talking to me about what's going on in her life, then I listen to these conversations, right? I listen to all of the conversations and I engage and I am interested because I want to know what she thinks and how she feels and what's going on and how she sees things. Does she need some guidance on that? Does, is she seeing it right? What do I need to reinforce? What do I need to maybe give her a different perspective on? Different things like that, right? Which would be some verbal nurturance. Like how do we nurture our kids in ways that give them self-esteem and good communication skills? You know, he says parents are pivotal players in the acquisition of verbal skills for kids. If a child's confidence and self-esteem are to solidify, they need to experience their parents as readily available to hear what they have to say. I, I mean, that's so basic to me, like, I, or it's so just, he sums it up so well. Like if my parents are not interested in what I have to say, how valuable can I be? He says, parents who are not neglectful, willingly and enthusiastically listen to their child. They do it not only out of duty, but also out of gratitude for exposure to a child's naturally vibrant curiosity and thirst for understanding can be healthily infectious. He says, participating in the miraculously rapid unfoldment and expansion of a fully welcomed new mind is a truly inspiring experience. I have a lot of good memories, conversations that came as I'm driving to a soccer game with a daughter, right? Or when they come home from school or we're running an errand, the two of us together and just have a conversation that kind of organically starts and I wasn't knowing where that was going and just let it unfold by getting curious and asking them questions and seeing what they think or how they think, right? What they observe and what's interesting to them. He says also verbal nurturance. He said children need copious amounts of praise, encouragement, and positive feedback for verbal, emotional, and physical ways that they express themselves. 
whether it's their ability to talk, whether it's their ability to be caring or thoughtful, whether it's their ability to sing or dance or draw, play, perform, work, create, problem solve, all of it needs to be witnessed. All of it needs to be appreciated if we're going to grow and mature those traits in our children. He says verbal encouragement will bolster a child's willingness to take risks that are necessary for ongoing growth and development. He says every child is born with natural self-confidence, but this confidence will not survive and grow without the fertilization and care provided by positive verbal feedback. And he talks about how that goes along with things like, you know, talking to our kids like about how they look. You know, that was always difficult for me having daughters. Like I didn't want to overly focus on their looks or their appearance. There were a lot of moms I knew who definitely got rewarded by how thin or curvy or whatever their daughters were, right? What a great physical appearance their daughters had and how beautiful their daughters were. And I, I didn't want to do that, but I also didn't want to like never say anything about their physical looks, right? Or never compliment them on being beautiful or like that blue looks amazing on you with your eyes or something like that, right? And I grew up with just not very much of that at all. Like I could probably think on one hand the things my mom told me. She didn't necessarily say mean things about me and my body, but she didn't give me positive feedback about my body either, which probably was her issue, I'm guessing. And so it was always hard for me. I was always like, where is that line? And have I said enough? I don't want to say too much, but I want them to feel like that they're beautiful people, both externally and internally, right? Not just physically, but also in personality or their intelligence or their drive or their motivation or like all of that, right? But I felt like if I I did all of that and never said anything about their physical appearance, that would be noticeable. And it was noticeable for me growing up. He talks about in this chapter about spiritual abuse. He says many parents reinforce their verbal, emotional, and physical abuse with frightening messages about a reviling and violently punishing God. Spiritual abuse occurs when parents cite God as a vengeful disciplinarian who orders or validates cruelty to children. He says spiritual abuse typically contains a strong emotional component in which children are filled with the fear of God and God is presented to them in terms that are the antithesis of love. They're taught that God will punish them in unimaginable cruel ways if they don't sacrifice something or give up something, you know, whether that's their wonderful normal way of being or something that they treasure, something that they like. He says many of us were also taught some of the most healthy aspects of our self-expression, sex, joy, pleasure, relaxation, balanced self-interest, are sinful and evil. He says, as a Catholic child, I was told that I was born with a stain on my soul that made me disgusting in the sight of God. He says, I was also taught that any thoughts or feelings of mine that had anything to do with self-satisfaction would earn me eons more in purgatory, if not an eternity in hell. It was a long time before my denial dissolved enough for me to remember how terrified I was as an impressionable preschooler at the visions of burning forever in the darkness and despair of hell. I think we have to be, you know, really careful about that. I remember when we were active in church with our younger daughters. And again, it it was a different experience raising four daughters in a conservative 
patriarchal religion. You know, I've talked with some friends sometimes and said like, I was willing to do for my daughters what I would never have done for myself as a female. And so there was a lot of discussion we would have. We'd all go to church as a family and we'd come home and around dinner time, we'd talk about what did you learn? And there was a lot of times that we were trying to kind of unlearn for them what was being put in during the time that they were at church. They would be in their separate classes than we were. And so many times, you know, during that discussion, we would talk about just kind of, it was much more casual. It wasn't anything formal, but just talking about like, what did you learn? And eventually as they got older, we'd talk about like, what did you learn that you agree with and that you really appreciate? And what do you learn that you do not agree with or that you think is wrong? And starting to give my daughters that voice for them to figure it out for themselves. You know, I've, I've mentioned this before, after we had exited our religion, my husband and I were actually the last two to exit. All four of our daughters had stopped attending. And, you know, so most Sundays, like, I mean, at that ending point, every Sunday, it was just my husband and I sitting on the pew and our kids weren't there. And that was okay. Like I was okay with that. They were not given grief about that. They knew that, that they knew that, you know, we had conversations about that. With my oldest daughter, I could tell in the teen years that the religion was doing damage to her confidence and to her self-esteem. Some of the kids in our church were doing that, but also that the religion was. And we had a conversation where I was just saying, like, if church is doing more harm than good, I don't think you should come. And, you know, and and we talked about that. And that I still think that must have been confusing because we were still attending, but she chose not to. And with our blessing... You know, it was just kind of a confusing process. But once we had all stopped attending, we were talking, I, th- I think it was over dinner one time, and one of my daughters, my third daughter, was actually saying, because there was kind of a, a triggering event that eventually, like, my husband and I left. Not eventually. Like, there was a triggering event, and we were out. And it had been some time. This wasn't, like, immediately after this had happened. But daughter number three, had, we were talking at dinner. We were sitting at dinner, I think, And she was just saying, do you think if this hadn't happened that you guys would still be trying to make the church work for you guys? And, you know, I thought about that and I said, well, I mean, I tend to overstay and be overly loyal to everything. And so I stay longer than I should. And, you know, they knew that about me and they were like, yep, yep, you do. And I said, but, you know, we were just kind of discussing that, like, I hadn't been asked that question before. So we were just kind of having that discussion and they were sharing their thoughts and we were sharing our thoughts as parents. And then, you know, this particular daughter said to me, I think it was just easier for all of us to leave because how you guys raised us was better than the church ever offered us as girls. And it kind of just hit both me and my husband. We were both just kind of like, oh, yeah. And so I was just kind of like, can you give me some examples, right? I could think of some. In my head, I was thinking of some. And then all my kids started like, well, this, like you guys told us this, but this is what we were told at church or this is what this. And and they brought that up. Like even, even you guys being willing to say, what do you agree with and what do you not agree with? They were just like, I mean, a lot of girls our age are not able to say that. And you certainly can't say it in the class. I mean, my girls would sometimes, but they were just like, it's just not acceptable, but it was acceptable in our house. 
And so I think we have to be, you know, careful. Again, I'm not practicing in any religion currently. And I don't have anything against people who are currently practicing in religion. But I can also see, I mean, I saw this when I was in religion too, how sometimes I think parenting can feel overwhelming. And we can have a lot of fear, especially when we've come from homes where there was dysfunctional parenting and maybe abuse or neglect or something like that. We can have a lot of fear around parenting. And we can easily do a bypass by saying, here's what the church says, A, B, C, D. Here's the answers, right? I don't have to think about this for myself. And if I do it wrong, it's not my fault, right? I mean, I'm not going to do it wrong because the church is telling me how to do it, which is God, right? And so I'm actually not going to do it wrong. So it almost can feel like this foolproof parenting plan, but often it's not, right? If there's fear in parenting, then that's going to be wrapped up in how you're parenting. Unless you're dealing with that directly, somehow that's going to come out at the kids because there's fear in, am I enough? Am I doing enough? Do I know enough? Am I healthy enough? Those types of things, whether those questions make it up to our conscious brain or stay in the subconscious or unconscious, when we're parenting by bypassing ourselves and using religion, there's going to be some problems in those relationships. He says, you know, spiritual neglect, on the other hand, occurs when children are not exposed to religious or philosophical perspectives that help them to see the good in life and themselves. He says it also occurs when they're given no guidance on how to self-compassionately deal with life's inevitable losses and disappointments. And so I, you know, I, I think like, I mean, we talk to our kids still sometimes. I mean, we're, you know, we live in a state that's highly Christian. We live in a country that's uh, predominantly Christian, you know, but our kids were also, you know, they had friends who were of different faiths or different denominations within Christianity um, which isn't something that a lot of the kids their age that we went to church with, they weren't friends with those same kids. And, you know, one of the times we were discussing this, my kids were like, how come? Like if there was a family of color, how come we ended up being friends with them and nobody else was? And I was like, I, I don't I don't know. I mean, they live next door. Like we just talked to them. And so I think we just had some more openness, which again, sometimes... I wasn't viewed as being a very good member of my Christian faith because I, you know, was exposing my kids to other beliefs and other traditions and other faiths and other ways of thinking. And part of that, I mean, I just, I don't know. I wasn't, that wasn't something that I was necessarily afraid of. I thought that was interesting, you know, but my kids have said like, yeah, it, it was good that we didn't, we weren't being raised in other homes because those experiences of knowing other people who were different than us had two moms or two dads or something like that, like that helped really shape me as to who I am. And I wouldn't have had that if I lived in a lot of the other neighborhood homes that my friends lived in. So how do we grieve as a spiritual practice? And how do we find healing when there's been spiritual abuse or spiritual neglect? You know, sometimes, and I will say that this is true for me too, when Mark Nepo was actually in town and I was driving him around, right? Well, I, my husband was driving him around because I'm horrible with directions and I did not want to get him lost or us lost. And so, you know, I had time to talk with him in the car as we're going places or different things like that. 
And so I shared with him, I said, you know, the first time I came across his book, The Book of Awakening, I started to read it. I started to do it as a daily thing. And then it just hit on some spiritual wounds for me. And I'd have to put it down for months or a year, right? And I would just put it down. And I think, oh, that is way too spiritual for me. It's too painful spiritually for me. Now, Mark, you know, he's raised Jewish, but he is not participating in any one denomination and talks about a lot of different denominations, right? Just kind of talks about different ideas and teachings and stories from a lot of different faiths. And and I said, and then, you know, I might pick it up however long later, I'd pick it up and I'd be like, oh, that's not just all spiritual or religious, right? Like it's not too religious and I'd get going again in it and then I'd be like, oh, and it would hit something and I'd have to put the book down and pick something else up. And I, I said, it was a, it was, you know, it's own little awakening for me. I mean, it's the book of awakening, but I said it was this process for me of recognizing where some of those spiritual wounds were that I didn't know otherwise, right? And having to work through them so that just that concept, if somebody shares a story from a religious tradition, that it doesn't hit on me in a way that is painful or drudges up this stuff from the past and I have to push it away or put it down, right? Or if somebody talks about their belief in God and uses that language, I don't have to stop listening or distract myself on my phone or correct them or something like that. Like I can appreciate the sentiment that they're sharing while I may hold different beliefs and I may use different language. He says, you know, some individuals directly experience the spiritual realm as grace emanating from a traditional representation of God, often in an inner vision. Others experience grace as coming from a more nebulous source, which depending on the individual might be called higher power, spirit, higher self, love, oneness, or unity, consciousness. I've also heard um, in the last you know, many years, uh, universe, He said, despite these differences, there are key similarities in most direct experiences of spirit. Most people report a powerful inner experience of being supported and cared for by something much greater than the self or another human being. Transpersonal therapists use the term numinous to describe profound, uplifting emotional experiences that seem to emanate from a divine source. Numinous experiences, he says, are transformative. They open our hearts in a way that heals the feelings of forsakenness that may have plagued us since childhood. He says the 10th century Christian mystic Simeon wrote eloquently about numinous experiences. He says, And everything that is hurt, everything that seemed to us dark, harsh, shameful, maimed, ugly, irreparably damaged, is in him transformed and recognized as whole, as lovely, and radiant in his light. We awaken as the beloved in every last part of our body. You know, for me, even that, like, that was part of, I think, my spiritual awakening. And surprisingly, it happened, I think, later than I would have expected it to happen, given the fact that I had four daughters. And I had four daughters who were different and strong in their own way and all of that type of stuff. But just that idea of going to church on a weekly basis and only hearing male pronouns 
constantly, right? Like it hurt me. It started to hurt my heart because at our house, sure, we had male pronouns. Usually we had a male dog and we had my husband and we'd have other people, you know, sometimes we had like three different boys live with us at different times as my kids were growing up during the teen years. So it's not like it was abnormal to have male pronouns, but we equally heard female pronouns. And so to go to church and only hear male pronouns started to hurt me, right? And I mean, a lot of times when I read thoughts, spiritual things, often it's the male pronouns that are used and there's a lack of femaleness. Now I have my own thoughts on that, but my own thoughts are still kind of hurtful to my heart, right? But he says, like all experiences with deep emotional content, numinous experiences are transitory. They are, however, so heartfelt and soul-stirring that their afterglow can last for a very long time. Even just one of these experiences often is often enough to leave an individual, no matter how tragic his losses, unshakably convinced of the ultimate goodness and love of a creator. They also typically unfold further into an ever-deepening access to intuition, in the way that intuition can be a subtler arising of the divine as an inner source of love, guidance, and nurturance. So again, I can read that previous one with the male pronouns, and I, I can feel it. I can feel it. Sometimes, sometimes I'll change it to a gender-neutral pronoun, right? Sometimes I'll use they, them, when even sometimes I would do that in church, which sometimes got me in trouble because it felt more inclusive to me or it felt like something was there for me as a female. But I can also connect with the beauty of what he was saying, right? In everything that was hurtful and all of those things that he said, there can be something transformed. Transformation can happen and we can awaken in every part of our body to something new. I can get behind that. I can set aside the male pronouns and I can get behind the idea that he was sharing from, what was it, the 1700s, right? That's okay. The 10th century. 10th century. Okay. But I think too, I hope that you've had some of those experiences. I know I've had those experiences at times that I didn't even expect it, where I had one of those numinous experiences that stayed with me, that kind of hit me in a way that changed me. And when I talk about those experiences with people, when I share those, I feel what it did to me. I feel those same feelings. I feel the power of that moment when it happened, even if that was, you know, five years ago. He says, many people have their first numinous experience through a spiritual practice based on prayer or meditation. Others, he says, like myself, experience numinous openings through grieving. Grieving can stimulate a profoundly moving opening to an authentic interconnection with the divine. As grieving naturally promotes the rebirth of aspects of ourselves lost in childhood, the greatest of these rebirths is the rebirth of a sense of spiritual belonging, that our soul has a home and that it has value. He says, when we recover a bodily-based spirituality, we gain all the grace, strength, and guidance that we need to have an enduring love affair with life. A spirituality that is based in reality gradually decreases the despair of the abused an abandoned inner child and replaces it with a sense of hope and meaning. He says, Ralph Metzner, psychotherapist and professor of consciousness studies, testifies to this when he says, out of the turmoil and darkness of dying 
comes the sparkling vitality of the newborn self. The new self is connected to the eternal source of all life, the source from which we all derive the divine essence within. It is therefore aptly named the eternal child. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.